Welcome to Creators by Moonlight. Real conversations with content creators. Gary Edelman is an accomplished historian, author, and licensed Gettysburg Battlefield Guide. As chief historian for the American Battlefield Trust, he interprets complex military history for the average person, including through the use of YouTube. In this episode, he talks about his love for historical photography, stories from the battlefield, and advice for would-be historians. one thing that I've learned, if I had to boil it down to one, is how much like us the people of the past were. If you do enough of this for 20 or 30 years, you know, maybe you start to formulate an opinion on how people could charge across a mile of open ground and then do it again a few months later. You know, how do you muster that kind of courage? Well, I would say that they're just like us and that soldiers do this sort of thing then and now. I'm a Chicagoan, so I grew up in the Chicago suburbs, uh, first Evanston, then Skokie. Jewish family, mostly working class. My dad co-owned a trucking business. My mom worked with special needs kids. I, like now, just liked to have fun. I liked thinking about things and engaging with people. And I had, you know, as happy a childhood as one could have. Some may say that's a, a way of looking at things, but it just, in reflection, and even at the time, seemed rather magical. It would have been hard to classify me as a history kid. I do come from a family of storytellers. So in that respect, family history and what had gone on in the past was important to my family. My parents dealt in antiques. My brother, sister, and I all collected things. So it was sort of a tangential history. I was certainly no history student. I found that my interest was almost inherent nonetheless. From my earliest memories, the pictures I would see on the mantle or at other people's houses, I would wonder where they were taken. I would further wonder what that place looked like now. I have distinct memories of being eight and seeing pictures from when I was three and wanting to go back to the place again. So somehow I became interested in this idea of the way that time passes over a place. They said it in Indiana Jones, you know, this is a worthless watch, but buried in the sand for 10,000 years and it becomes priceless. When the movie Frequency came out, there's people talking over time the son and his dad, and he needs something from his dad, but they're decades apart. And the dad simply buries a wallet under a piece of furniture in the house. And there it is. It's just immediately there. It's gray and old and everything like that. So somehow my history entry was about this idea of time passing over a place. And I have no idea why. It set me up perfectly for the denouement, the moment that changed my life. I was a sophomore at Evanston Township High School. Again, I was not reading for pleasure at the time, but I was a fast test taker. So I finished a test on the last day of finals quicker than a friend of mine, and I had some time to kill. And I went to the library, which was, you know, I liked libraries enough, even though I didn't read for pleasure. And I don't know why that day I ended up in the history section, and I don't know why I pulled off the shelf a book with big red letters that said what I thought was Antietam, but I later learned would be Antietam a battle in Maryland in 1862, and I simply opened it up, and boom, there I saw it. The author, William A. Frazzanito, had taken old photos, the oldest photos basically that there were of a major event. I came to learn that it was of a particularly well-photographed event, the Civil War, 
And he took those old photos, found the same place now, and lined them up one above the other, then and now. And I was, because of my inherent interest in such a thing, even though I didn't know it existed, I was immediately hooked. I became obsessed with historic photography, obsessed with the Civil War. And this was 1983. By 1988, I'd take my first trip to Gettysburg, really to any battlefield. And by 1992, I would move there without a job. At this point in his life, Gary considered history a hobby that wouldn't pay. He actually moved to Gettysburg with the intent on entering a completely different industry. I love the restaurant business. I still do. It's a demanding career, but it's also very rewarding. You know, I like schmoozing, talking to people. I like solving problems, and restaurants have all that stuff. And I also didn't think I could make money at history. And here, I could go to college, which I went for hotel and restaurant management at Michigan State. And here I could have a career and actually make money and maybe have leisure time to do other things I liked as well. Eventually, however, the pull toward Gettysburg, starting with my first trip in 1988, and then the next nine trips I took between 1988 and 1992, I just was so obsessed with being there. I took every spare moment in vacation day I could to just go to battlefields, namely Gettysburg, plus a few others. The pull was too strong. I was moving up in this restaurant corporation, Let Us Entertain You, and I knew if I didn't move then, I was 25 years old, 1992, that I might regret it. So I simply decided to move there for a year. In 1992, I moved near the end of a tourist season. Not a good idea when everything is winding down. Not able to find a job, I opened a health food restaurant and coffee house with my then girlfriend called Food for Thought Cafe and Coffee House. And through that, which was open for a few years until the local college, Gettysburg College, actually bought the place, I then started writing, studying for, and then becoming a licensed battlefield guide, maybe speaking to groups and things like that. So these things, my time in Gettysburg at first sort of acted as a key, not only testing ground, but knowledge gaining ground to set me up for the future. I didn't have a specific thing in mind in moving there. My goal was, which is pretty interesting, do some writing become an activist for battlefield preservation and live out in the country, which Gettysburg compared to Chicago is out in the country. So that was it. It's pretty interesting that that's exactly what I do now. Standing out in the field of American history is hard to start with. It's a very popular major. It's one that professors regularly advise their kids. There's not a lot of jobs here. They advise wannabe professors. You might not be able to teach this because so many people want to. Standing out in the Civil War is even harder, and standing out in the Gettysburg area is really hard. There's just so many people who are interested in it. It's sort of the mecca of Civil War battlefield places. So I determined to do a few things. One, to know as much as I could. I soon met people when I would go to Gettysburg. Then I realized how much people could know about a single event. That's when I realized I could spend my life studying just that battle and still not have it all down. So I wanted to know a lot. I wanted to become a licensed battlefield guide. I wanted to get some of my particular messages out there, even not knowing what they were. And I wanted to bring my particular brand of what I would call schmoozing, taking care of people, to a larger audience. I'd been dying to have people to talk to about this. And until I moved to Gettysburg, I didn't have that. I made people around me hate the Civil War because I didn't know how to read them and when to stop. I quickly learned how to do that. The climb was gradual, you know, from writing my first article in 1992 and getting it published to becoming a battlefield guide, passing that written test in 1994. And then once I wrote a book 
Devil's Den, A History and Guide. I co-wrote it with a historian named Tim Smith. Once we had the book out and I was a battlefield guide, then people invite you to speak because you have a book. And that speaking, guiding, and writing thing, that's when it really started to ascend. That's when you end up on cable TV or maybe on a documentary if you're lucky. And that's when people got to see my particular brand. For some reason, I've never had a problem showing the enthusiasm I feel. People who know me know that that's actually how I am in regular life, not just while I'm talking about history, not just while I'm on YouTube. I'm an enthusiastic dude. I like being alive and I love telling stories. So it somehow comes through. So those three things, guiding, writing, speaking, sort of conspired to make everything get bigger. Of course, this was all in advance of social media, you know, where it really exploded. So I don't know where it's headed even from here, but between sort of my moving to Gettysburg in 1992, a key point to sort of this time that would, I'll say up until 2009, it just steadily increased my opportunities to do history things, to get paid for them through a historical consulting firm or things I was doing on the side. All of that, writing, guiding, speaking, doing research, all sort of steadily moved up all the way until 2009. Gettysburg is the largest battle of the Civil War fought in the first three days of July 1863. It's a close thing. The Confederates win the first day of the battle. On the second day, the Union holds, but the Confederates gain some ground. And on the third day, the climactic attack, now known as Pickett's Charge, will force the Confederates away from the field and back into Virginia. And the Union, under General George Gordon Meade, have won a huge victory. And because of that, it's seen by many as a turning point, the turning point of the Civil War. It's seen as the high watermark of the Confederacy. And I think things like that, that it's considered the turning point, that we still look at it as this sort of Kentucky Derby of battlefields, is for a few reasons, maybe a half dozen. One, largest battle. There's nothing else close. The second place one might have two-thirds as many casualties. There's nothing else near it. Two, it was near population centers. So this was not some faraway place. This was a place where New York, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Washington, the population centers could send journalists. They could send photographers. Three, it was a place that became memorialized as the location of the Gettysburg Address. When Abraham Lincoln went to deliver a few appropriate remarks at the consecration of the new Soldiers National Cemetery there four months after the battle, it became one of the, if not the most famous speeches in American history. So you've got that going for it. It was also heavily photographed the year of the battle. Seven, eight, nine different photographers photographed the place so people could see what it looked like. It also had all the icons, Little Round Top, Pickett's Charge, you know, the Railroad Cut, the Peach Orchard, Culp's Hill. So these places that became famous quickly. Maybe finally, I would say that it's also the first Civil War battlefield park to be preserved. It's the first battlefield to be preserved as a park, starting with four acres. Now it's more than 8,000. So people could go to it. So all these things together sort of conspired to make Gettysburg this place that became synonymous with Civil War battle, that became synonymous with the turning point, the high watermark of the Confederacy. I certainly don't agree that it's the turning point of the Civil War. I might be able to be convinced that it's a high watermark along with what was going on in Mississippi in 1863, but because Gettysburg is the big thing, it is both propped up and also resented in the 19th century and today by people who favor or rightly say that the other places are important too. Part of my obsession and my full-time job is to 
understand the past better, right? And to hopefully relate that, relate what I've learned about it to people today. I look at it as opening little windows. I'm trying to paint some sort of a picture through my movements, through imagery, through waving my arms around, through stories, to try to get people through various windows to say, that's it. I get it. That's what it was like. And that could be through a building. It could be through a story. It could be a sad or a happy one. Different people react to different modes of interpretation, right? But yet, I'm doing all this not knowing exactly what it was like. I'm trying to do this by interpreting what I've learned, what the participants wrote, by combining that with maps, photos, and of course, the battlefields themselves to try to understand it better. I can say that the one thing that I've learned, if I had to boil it down to one, is how much like us the people of the past were. We tend to think we're different in some ways, and sure, our lives are more complicated. We have access to things they didn't. They might have been a little hardier, lived outside and things like that a lot more. But in terms of essentials, in terms of what they wrote about, in terms of what mattered to them, we are the same. And I think that goes for soldiers as well. People look at the brave or stupid things that people in the Civil War did and think, oh my God, they must have either had a death wish or must be far more brave than today's soldiers. I can't tell that soldiers of the Civil War are any different than soldiers today. I think that they are duty-bound. I think that they are trained to do at least in concept what they're supposed to do. I think humans, soldiers included, naturally push back at some point when something is not right. But I will say one thing about Civil War soldiers. They wrote about something in much more proliferation than today's people, today's soldiers do. And that is this hard-to-get-across concept of honor, 19th century honor, the way it pervaded society in a way that we can't even understand. And I'm not saying there's not honorable and duty-bound people today. Of course there are. This was often their first concern, that they wanted to comport or conduct themselves with honor for whatever that meant at the time. It certainly meant doing your best as a soldier, that your parents don't get word that you were shot in the back running away, that you weren't a shirker or a horse thief. And that can be whether you are defending your home, advancing into an enemy territory, whatever the concept of honor was to each side at the time. Although Southerners might have talked about it a little bit more, more openly, this idea of honor, it pervaded them. I'll tell a story or two. One time at a place called Second Manassas, the second battle there, you know, an eerie scene, you know, where apparently somebody walking after the first night of the battle, it's dark out, they can see lanterns swinging around. And a man was looking for wounded soldiers and he heard a pitiful whine or a cry and he realized that it was his son's cry. He said, my boy, is that you? And he runs up to him in the darkness, sort of. And as soon as the boy saw his dad, he sought to justify himself. Father, I'm not crying because my leg was shot off. And now the father could see his leg was shot off. I'm crying because when my leg was shot off, I fell backward into this ditch and there's a hornet's nest there. And the bees have been stinging me ever since. Please pull me out. And it's a terrible story. I hope it's not apocryphal. The boy dies in the father's arms. This was the kid's first concern as if having your leg shot off wasn't enough to be able to wail. And he wanted his dad to know that he was being brave even in death or as he was dying. Even at Gettysburg, a simpler story, a sad one as well, where an inexperienced soldier didn't understand the latent force of a cannonball. He saw one coming toward him seemingly harmlessly. It was just bounding across the ground during a lull in the fighting, and it was just rolling toward him. And he locked his knee and stuck out his foot to stop it. And by the time the veterans yelled, no, his leg was off. 
And he was rolling around on the ground, not saying, I lost my leg, rather saying, I shall always be embarrassed to say how I lost it. That was his first concern. And people like me, not me alone, use accounts like this to try to get into the minds of, in this case, two soldiers. When you see it again and again, maybe more people felt that way. If you do enough of this for 20 or 30 years, you know, maybe you start to formulate an opinion on how people could charge across a mile of open ground and then do it again a few months later. You know, how do you muster that kind of courage? Well, I would say that they're just like us and that soldiers do this sort of thing then and now. I'm a Gettysburg guy. I'm also an Antietam and a Manassas guy. Antietam, bloodiest day of the Civil War, results directly in the Emancipation Proclamation. Oh my God. You know, you've got two battles at Manassas, both Confederate victories, both important ones as well that led on to other things. I'm a huge fan of the Western theater. So you've got the incredibly interesting and important campaign and battles for Vicksburg, which results in the Confederacy literally being cut in two. You've got the bloodiest battle ever fought in Kentucky at Perryville. The same thing can be said about Bentonville in North Carolina for its state. There's clusters of battlefields too when you go to Nashville. I mean, you can see some 1864, late 1864 battles at Spring Hill and Franklin, a terrible engagement, for, especially for the South. And Nashville, you could even see places where they fought two years earlier at the Battle of Stones River or Murfreesboro. Other clusters are Chattanooga and Chickamauga and the Atlanta campaign, where you can trace William Tecumseh Sherman and his troops all the way from Chattanooga to Atlanta and then onto the sea to Savannah. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. I mean, I didn't even bring up most of Richmond, where you have a cluster around there and the Fredericksburg area, where you have the wilderness, Spotsylvania, Chancellorsville, and Fredericksburg. They tended to move along where transportation facilities were, where roads and railroads were. So they often fought at the same place or the same general locale again and again. I'm mentioning these places because they are all visitable. You can go there and have a good experience. I'm also having an increasingly growing interest in the revolution as well, whose battlefields are smaller, but very interesting. Gary talks about the importance and difficulty of preserving American battlefields. There's a couple of things to address here. I would say that losing a collective memory is real and is a real danger. We don't sort of retain this knowledge about how we came to be and what our important values are by osmosis. It's by learning it, by discussing it with each other. It might be apocryphal again, but supposedly when a woman found out that we were going to be a republic, Ben Franklin warned her, it's a republic if you can keep it. And keeping it requires us maintaining and proliferating these values about how we are formed and everything like that. So I think it's real. However, I'll say that people have been, the government has been conducting surveys about people's knowledge of American history. And it is absolutely terrible. Just general knowledge about the basics of our civics and our most basic history about how we came to be. Absolutely terrible. But it's no worse than it was in 1970 or 1940 or 1910. Ever since they've been charting it, young people are absolutely terrible at understanding our American history. It does seem like it's getting worse, but there's no real evidence to support this. Is there less of an emphasis upon the fact that citizen soldiers were what helped to make the ultimate decisions that created and defined our country? Yeah, that might be being lost somewhat, but people have a way of thinking that somehow they were taught all this history. You know, the surveys don't really support this. However, 
I will say there's a very real threat of the places being lost to the tune of 30 acres a day, rampant development, which I'm not against. I mean, you know, the country's growing. When I was a kid, there were 190 million people in the country. It'll be double that soon. <laughs> we need to grow. You know, battlefield land from the French Ninia War, Mexican War, Civil War, War of 1812, Revolution, they're being swallowed up. The key here is that when the government can get involved, when private citizens can get involved, they're less threatened. You're not going to get it all. I'm not sure if you need it all, but you do need to retain the land of where the key things happen so you can tell that story. It's like the difference between going to the football or baseball game versus watching it on TV. There's something you understand and grasp and arguably enjoy more by being there. So I do think that once the government gets involved, once money is put into it, once the weight of the federal government or state governments are put into it, things happen. When the place I work, the American Battlefield Trust, when we first started, we were preserving Civil War land. About six years ago, the government approached us and said, we are going to put into that same pot of matching money, supporting American Revolution in 1812 as well, as well as the Civil War. So would you get into it? There's no national group to do it. And after two years of hard thought, we did. Now those are being done. The next question is, well, what about Native American wars? What about French and Indian wars? What about the Mexican war? What about Nike missile sites? And what about European wars? So there's only so much that a tax-paying citizenry will pay for these things. There's only so much land that is available that people actually want to sell. This isn't a situation of eminent domain where the government comes in and takes it. It's working with willing sellers. So a lot of progress has been made, especially in the Civil War space since 1990. And a lot of progress has been made, especially in the revolution space in the last five years. And that should get better with the 250th anniversary of the country coming up. But make no mistake, we're not going to get it all and we're losing acreage every day. Gary explains how he began using the power of video production and YouTube to bring historical battlefield walks to a large, previously untapped audience. I was working for a historical consulting firm in Rockville, Maryland. Great job. I loved it. And while I was there, I helped to develop a line of business called interpretive planning. And my main client was the then Civil War Preservation Trust, now the American Battlefield Trust. So I started kind of laying out battlefields for them, which was what a, what a privilege to be able to actually, you know, be responsible for deciding where a trail goes. What's the most interpretable place? What should it say? What graphics should you use? It was great. And I, I did a dozen of those before I was done. Great, great, cool work. And eventually I started doing more work with the trust. Somebody there needed a tour for somebody who might become a major contributor. Get Gary. Hey, we're going to have an event. Hey, can Gary do a presentation? Hey, we need some research done. Maybe Gary and his, at his firm can do it. Before long, I was doing a lot of work for the trust. In the middle of 2009, I approached the trust and said, hey, if you're interested, you're already probably paying this firm more salary than you'd pay me. I'm interested in coming to work there. Long story short, by April of 2010, I started working there running the education department. And I knew right away what people already liked. I'd already been a guide by then for 15 years. You know, People wanted basic stuff. We couldn't make the assumption that people knew about our subject. So I started putting out basic articles on the website, started making before long basic videos. Here's a Civil War subject in four minutes. Started doing longer form videos. Here's you know a way that we can take you into an archives, into a collections facility, out to a battlefield. You know, Even if you can't go, sort of virtual visits. Started putting up 
360 degree views of battlefields so people could see what they wanted to see from various vantage points. Started working with a very capable production house named Wide Awake Films to make animated maps to lay out graphically what people wanted. Our videos were sort of not really taking off, but they were gaining some traction. We were trying to get people to our site. This was before YouTube was the obvious place to go, although we were slow to go over there. But then a few things happened around 2015, 2016. First of all, YouTube had already taken off. It was clear that this was going to be the place to go. And it was clear that instead of getting tens of thousands of video views, that we could get hundreds of thousands of video views, maybe even more. And then I remember the day that, uh, and by the way, this whole time I had been working in all the places you needed to. I had a small team first, just one staffer plus me, then two, then three. Now it's me plus five doing a bunch of things, plus contractors and interns and fellows helping us out because we do a lot of content. We know we needed to be on battlefields, interpreted trails. We needed to be in schools, lesson plans, curricula, videos, articles, timelines, glossaries. We know we needed to be in the media. We know we needed to write books and we know we needed to do events. So I was supporting all that stuff. But the day that I heard that Facebook, of which I was already a fan, oh my God, I could show my photos to people and they could choose to look at them or not comment on them or not, I was already a Facebook fan and I'd already established a sort of separate Civil War Facebook page. Advice to anybody out there listening, it's really good to have a separate page for your vocation. <laughs> you don't want people you don't know having access to your family stuff and whatnot. There's reasons I did all this. So I was already a Facebook fan and then I learned that you could go live with your phone from anywhere. <laughs> and it took about one minute before I determined we're going to take these out to battlefields and we're going to have cool experiences walking around on battlefields. Now, like a lot of the ideas I have, you know, it was, it's going to be great. That's my first thought, without always thinking of all of the difficulties associated with that. One, battlefields are often in rural places where there's no cell coverage at all. Two, you need equipment to do that. It's windy outside. You're moving around from place to place. Connectivity changes. It's not 360. How are you showing people things? Do you appear on or do you show the battlefield more? And how in the world can you have guests on when at the time, you know, it was very difficult for Facebook to deal with multiple mics and things like that. So it was a rocky start. But I will say that by 2017, we'd already done some indoors, some outdoors in Tetum at an apothecary in um, Alexandria, Virginia. But for Gettysburg 154 in 2017, I determined to do a big Battlefield Live. So it's going to be a big anniversary thing. And we shot 10, 20 videos, all of them live, even where we had terrible connectivity. And it was a huge hit. People complained about the wind. They complained about the connectivity. But nonetheless, people loved it. Sometimes we had more than 1,000 people on at a time. And some of those videos got 500,000 views. It was crazy. So it went really well. And then we doubled down. The guy I co-run the department with since 2017, Chris White, just dug into the tech and we've been making it better ever since, getting stabilizers, getting wireless mics. People still complain sometimes it's so windy that the wind goes through the windscreen. Sometimes it's zero degrees and howling wind and people still, from the comfort of their home, still complain that this free thing isn't great enough. And I push back on them during those lives because you get to see their comments. And I just marvel at what a world this is that I can be out on a battlefield and I have a television production studio, as Doc put it in Back to the Future, in my pocket. And at any point I can go live and people can tell me what they like or don't like about it while I'm there. 
And when you have a crew of three or four, when you bring objects and artifacts there, when you bring people to parts of battlefields that they can't otherwise see, it's just magical. And I, I, you know, there are pitfalls, but it is a beautiful thing. I can proudly say that the American Battlefield Trust's number one engagement with the public digitally is through video. That only changed in 2021, and now it's only growing more. We had something like 19 million web visits last year, but we had 62 million video views last year. So video is an important part of what we do now. We see people in the comments actually telling us what they want. They say, I just joined the American Battlefield Trust. I'm going to support this effort. Hey, you need to know about X or Y. It's an incredible tool for engagement and an incredible tool to tell you that you need to have a thick skin because, man, nobody is everybody's cup of tea. So there are dangers associated, especially with you know being live and you're going to say the wrong thing sometimes. So it's a mixed bag that is mostly awesome. I wish I could say it was a rare thing to go to a battlefield or a part of a larger battlefield and be alone. I mean, in a perfect world, these places would be reverently visited by people. Of course, not everybody does it with reverence, and I think that's okay. There's people that want to gawk. I've seen people get upset. I've seen them cry. I've seen them be upset to the point where they lash out at me because of what happened in the past. But there is something to be said of having a battlefield to yourself. It's not like a park, a regular park. Something happened there and something deadly happened there. And often something that changed the trajectory of our country happened there. So I love having battlefields to myself. But as my original restaurant mentor said, nothing decorates a place like people. So I love battlefields when they're crowded as well. I'll add that time of year, you know, people often ask me, what's the best time to see this place or that? There is no bad time. In the winter, you can usually see through the trees, at least in the north. Nobody's there by comparison. The fall, you often have the fall colors, depending on where you are. Summer and spring, you know, often that's when the battles were fought. You can be there at the, at the original time. So there's no bad time. Gary discusses his connection to the original generation of Civil War photographers, as well as the impact the online battlefield walks have had on people. I've never been asked this question about whether I see myself as sort of a continuation of the Civil War photographers. It's interesting. I've never once thought about that. As much as I'm obsessed with the photography and am constantly thinking about how to bring battlefields to people, somehow I've always seen those things as different. Now that I'm being asked the question, of course there are similarities between what Matthew Brady, Alexander Gardner, William Pywell and so many others were doing, they were taking pictures of places and often captioning those pictures to tell people what it is and have them purchase it on a stereo card as a book. And sometimes doing that in 3D if it's a stereo card. And that sounds like exactly or very much like what I do, right? It's a moving image instead of a still most of the time. Although sometimes a single photo on my Facebook page does better than any video. So I'm taking an image, I'm describing that image, sometimes I'm doing it in 3D just like they did, and maybe with a slightly different goal. You know, my main goal isn't to raise money, and that was their main goal. I mean, they're a business. That should be their main goal. But it seems very similar, and you know, once in a while I do put on a white linen duster, and I get a little Matthew Brady vibe going on, even as I'm taking something with a smartphone. Very interesting. I appreciate the question. 
part of this whole thing about that we're greater than any other generation is you think your stuff is the greatest, right? And therefore, my special digital 4x5 camera <laughs> must be better than that archaic technology. Well, there's a problem. You know, the cameras I grew up with had film, and on film, there is grain. The cameras I use now are digital, and they have pixels. Now, ideally, you could have a lot of pixels, so you can't see the pixels, but I would still challenge anybody today to take the best digital camera to which they have access and achieve the resolution that Civil War photographers got, especially on the larger glass plates, the ones that were seven by nine inches. In perfect conditions, you could, and I've seen these perfect conditions, zoom in from 15 feet away and see somebody's fingerprints. And I haven't seen that out of any digital image from 15 feet away, even in perfect conditions. I would love to be shown. I, I don't deny that it's possible because we have some unbelievable cameras out there now. So they were incredibly sharp. However, ironically, they couldn't have been doing this with this in mind. They clearly didn't take their pictures to be showing something that was less than a quarter of an inch square somewhere deep in an image. They were taking it on a usually of a primary scene or a subject. It's almost happenstance that the resolution is well-suited to digital scanning and for us to be able to view later. It's wildly rewarding to know that you are impacting people positively. You impact some people negatively, and they certainly tell you, especially on YouTube. But 95 to 99.5% of people who comment like or love what you're doing. And it's almost unfair. I am not in this for the ego. I have a healthy ego, but that's not why I do it. I'm not in it for the money. Pick a different career other than history if you want to be really wealthy. I just, I have always liked telling stories and the restaurant person in me likes taking care of people. And if I can do those two things both at once, that's what motivates me. I just am still in touch with when I couldn't pay people to listen to me about this stuff. And now that I find myself in the world where people thank me for doing, for getting paid to do my obsession, it's a really strange thing. I understand it. I understand when I watch a movie, read a book, or watch a video that impacts me, I want to reach out and let that creator know that it had an impact on me. And it's so rewarding that people come up to me, and I mean with great frequency when I'm on a battlefield, with difficult frequency when I'm at Gettysburg. <laughs> My Gettysburg experience is totally different. I see comments online. I get emails from people telling me things like, you've made me decide I wanted to major in history. You've changed the way I do X or Y. I'm a wounded veteran and I don't walk and you take me to these places. During COVID, you are my godson. By the way, this isn't me. This is the American Battlefield Trust. I can't do this stuff as much as I do on my own because I'm constantly at battlefields with the trust and with staff to help shoot these things. So I just can't stress enough how rewarding it is. Having said that, sometimes we're just trying to work and people want to have a beer. They want to chat about history. I mean, history is my full-time job, so I have to make decisions, right? At Gettysburg two years ago, a guy literally screeched on the brakes and ran through the bushes to come talk to us while we were trying to get ready to do a shoot. I'll have people yelling at me from the cars, and sometimes it's a little disturbing, you know, when I'm just trying to work. People don't know how much work this is. I do enjoy myself, but it is absolutely exhausting to do what I and we do. So sometimes it's a hassle, this little teeny taste of fame that I get when I'm on battlefields, when I'm in restaurants and bars, especially in Gettysburg, but other battlefields as well. An 18-year-old at Mobile, Alabama at a subway you know, who recognize, who just said, love your videos. You know, it's rewarding and sometimes it's a hassle, but man, I'm doubling down on it. I'm going to do more of it this year than I've ever done before because that's our number one engager. 
It helps to spread the message. It helps to raise money for battlefield preservation. And it seems to make people happy. So I'll keep going. If I try to think about my coming year, this is the case every year. I can't even A, remember it all that's coming because my year is all booked already. People see me on YouTube and think they can call me tomorrow. Hey, want to give me a tour of Gettysburg tomorrow? <laughs> no, I'm booked for this whole year. And it's like this all the time. So I guess what I would say is I'm exceedingly excited that it's a 160th year of all the 1863 battles. As a Gettysburg guy, I've got Gettysburg 160 coming up, not to mention Chancellorsville, Chickamauga, Kelly's Ford, Brandy Station, Chattanooga, all sorts of cool anniversaries coming up. And anniversaries are contrivances. I get that. But they bring people, resources, and events together at those places, and they're often fun. We are going to release soon our first what's called step-in videos. YouTube has really seemed to double down on virtual reality and 360 format, so we've played with it. We had one video go viral in 2022, which basically doubled our YouTube views of all time, practically, <laughs> just from one great, incredible six-week period when YouTube is prioritizing quality VR. So look for some VR things where I'm actually stepping into historic photos, where the viewer has a feeling that they're going into famous Gardner photos at Antietam. Very cool. Look for an animated map. I told you at the outset that I realized that people needed basic stuff. And the bigger and broader we go, it seems like the more people like it. So we are attempting one animated map that covers more than 200 years of American military history. I'm excited about that. I'm excited for trips. I've already been to Mobile and New Orleans. I'm excited to go to Vicksburg this year. My first trip to Glorieta Pass in New Mexico. I'll be in Olusti, Florida. Looking forward to going up to West Point and doing some shooting up there, I hope. All sorts of other things. I can't even remember all the incredible video and other projects we have going on this year. So just know that I'm in a perpetual state of excitement and disbelief over the things I get to do. I've had so many cool history experiences, and most of them aren't this high-tech, high-end thing. Oh, had this fancy dinner with X and Y. No, usually it's a cool moment on a battlefield or an usually restricted access to a place, a museum or otherwise. And I get to do them every year somehow. And I guess if anybody is wondering, why is this fair that Gary gets to do all this stuff? Well, yeah, I worked real hard for a long time. I doggedly made myself valuable to people who could help me later. I was patient about volunteering at everyone who would have me, whether it be speaking or serving on a board of some type or another for 20 years before I got my dream job. And I you know, somehow bring something to the table that other people have been unable to, and that allows me to do cool things and bring them to you all. Gary offers his overall advice for would-be historians and content creators. If somebody wanted to get into this field, content creation, history, both, first of all, you have to find your voice. If you're just going to do what everybody else does, don't bother because there's so much content available now. So you need to stand out in some way. And to stand out, you really need some sort of a skill. You need to either be better on that subject than most other people, or you need to bring something to it that's different. In my case, what? Energy and enthusiasm is what I'm told the most. It's not my brains, you know, my book smarts. It's that I can bring things to people in a different way that people seem to like. I would also tell them to be patient. I would tell them to specialize in something, whether that be a concept, an era of history, a place. Be really good at that one thing. And then be good at the back end of things that makes people want to work with you. The administrative end, 
you know, people underestimate how important it is to be organized and how that organization reflects upon yourself. When people want to work with you, if they don't have a good experience, I don't care how good the video is, they're not going to seek you out again if it was an unenjoyable experience, if they were harassing you to try to get the information they needed for the video shoot or the collaborative project or anything like that. I would say be dogged in finding people who could be helpful to you and be helpful to them. When people work with you, and after you're, say, 22, you can sort of mess up, but things get real after that. People have long memories. So I would say don't compromise. Do excellent work. Surround yourself with excellent people. Don't help a friend of yours professionally if your friend is disreputable or not doing great work. That's what I would say is try to associate yourself with people at the top of their game or people who can help you. You know, the moment you compromise, you very well might come to regret it. So try as best you can to bring together the full slate of things and maybe you'll get to do what you love eventually or reap some other benefit. I would say if you want to learn about the formative conflicts of American history, the Revolution, 1812 and Civil War, go to battlefields.org or go to the American Battlefield Trust on YouTube, Facebook or other social channels to learn more. If you want to learn a little bit about my experience, my particular brand of history, follow my Gary Edelman Civil War page on Facebook only. Thanks for listening to Creators by Moonlight. Email the show at creatorsbymoonlight at gmail.com and follow the show on social at creatorsbymoonlight.com.